All right. Let's. Uh, <clears throat> this morning, what I want to do, uh, and over the next couple of weeks, is uh, dive into communion and sort of do a study about the Lord's table. Um, look at that. It's been a very long time since we have had communion, since we've participated in that together. Uh, and that's there's no excuse for that. Uh, so we want to make sure that we've got that uh, understanding uh, put together again. And we will, on Easter, we will plan on having communion together. So hopefully this is an informative study for us as we move forward uh, looking at this. Um, so the Lord's table this morning, I want to talk about the institution. Where did it come from? How did it come to be? Uh, and a little bit about the elements, because there's, uh, actually, we're not going to get to the elements. We're going to get to the elements next week. We're going to talk about the purpose of it, why it was instituted. Um, and so that's what we want to talk about this morning. So <clears throat> there are two ordinances that God gave the church, the body of Christ. And there's only two. And an ordinance is simply a ceremony designed to show or to encourage one's faith. That's all it is. And Jesus Christ, uh, when he was leaving and he gave us the Great Commission, one of the aspects of that Great Commission is to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the baptism, as we've talked about this in the past, is that it's an exhibit of the fruit of the works of Jesus Christ. Right Here it is, my personal identification with Jesus Christ. I want to be... Uh, viewed as one of his, and I'm going to submit myself to this ordinance of baptism as that identification. We look to Romans chapter 6 in many respects for, uh, for the, the themes that we find there. We see this, this symbology, if I can use that term, where we are laid down in the water and then brought back in newness of life. And it's a, it's a celebration of what Christ has done and an identification with that. Here's the fruit of his Holy Spirit uh, regenerating me. I choose to uh, participate in baptism. The second ordinance, the second celebration ceremony that God has given us, designed to encourage our faith and designed uh, to show our faith, is communion or the, the Lord's table. And it remembers the finished work of Jesus and the price that was paid. That's what it's about. Let's talk about its institution here for a moment. Jesus gave the church the ordinance of communion. It was him that established it. In fact, it was him that established both ordinances that we celebrate. Let's look in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have an account. They're all very, very similar in what happens here. Matthew chapter 26. Let's read verses 26 through 29. And I just want to put you in remembrance that here is Jesus. This is the Last Supper from his perspective. It's a celebration. It's a Passover meal. And, and we remember the symbolism that Passover is. Right back in Exodus chapter 12, as the nation of Israel is getting ready to leave uh, Egypt, it's the last plague that is sent uh, to, to Egypt. And God gives them very special instructions. He says, the angel of death is going to come through. He's going to take the firstborn of every household. And this is how 
you mark yourselves effectively so that the angel of death may, death may pass over. And so each one, each household would take a lamb. And if you or your household wasn't large enough, then you and your neighbors would get together. But one lamb would be brought in and it would live with you for a short period of time. And then that lamb would be slain. Blood would be poured out in the doorway. And then the blood would be applied to the sides and the top of the doorposts. And through that night, there was a meal that was shared. This lamb that had been slain would be prepared in a particular way, and it would be eaten. And anything left would be burned and consumed in the fire. There was to be nothing left. And God gave the nation of Israel specific instructions. And he said, eat this meal with your loins. Be ready to go, because this is it. We have this spotless lamb, symbolized shedding of blood, the application of the blood and the passing over of the angel of death. This was such a significant event and such a thing that God had established that he wanted to make sure they understood it. And so he said, I want you to reorder your months. This month that you celebrate Passover, and this will be the first month of your calendar from now on. So that when you celebrate this Passover, when we have this feast, when we do all of these things and your children ask you, why are we doing this? Why does this celebration about? We explain to them, this is something that God has established, given a picture, a foreshadowing of the offering of Jesus Christ. And so here is Jesus in this upper room with his disciples, with these men, and they break bread together. They share this Passover meal looking forward to the sacrifice that Jesus was about to offer. And in the middle of all of this, in the middle of this circumstance, in the middle of this Passover celebration, Jesus picks up, and let's read in verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it. The word blessed, it's the word that we take our word eulogize from. It means to, with many thanksgivings. He blessed it and break it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus takes two elements. He takes the bread and he takes the cup of wine that they're sharing. And he says, with thanksgiving, he breaks the bread. And he distributes that bread and he says, take, eat. This is my body. This is representative of my body. And he takes the cup and he passes it around. He says, take and drink this cup. This cup represents my blood, the blood of a new covenant, New Testament that is shed for you for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins. The purpose of the Lord's table is remembrance. That's why God gave it to us. Just as he gave the nation of Israel Passover and, and established something that was to cause them to remember the Lord's faithfulness, God, to you and I, the church, the body of Christ, said this is, something that you do in remembrance of me. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
1 Corinthians chapter 11. In this chapter, we find Paul teaching the Corinthian church, and they had a lot of issues, a lot of problems with their communion celebration. And Paul is addressing those, and, and as we read through this, what you'll find is that here is Paul speaking, and if you have one of those Bibles with the red letters, you'll find some red letters in there. And he talks about this is what he has received from the Lord himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in the middle of all that, verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. This is, a, this is made for remembrance. This is something that we do to bring to light, to bring to remembrance all that Jesus Christ has finished on the cross for you and I. In Luke chapter 22, we find the parallel account to what we read in Matthew. Luke chapter 22, verse 19. And as with many of the gospel accounts in different chapters and different uh, perspectives, we have some slightly different information. Same scene, same thing happening, but in the end, we find some additional information that we can put into practice here. Jesus says in verse 19 of Luke 22, and he took bread and gave thanks and break it and said unto them, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. This celebration, this breaking of bread, this coming together to share the Lord's table that he has instituted with his disciples in the upper room at Passover is to be done in remembrance of what he has done for you and I. Now, in all of this, we're going to go through some of the things that we remember in regard to Jesus Christ, but I want to just put it out there because it should become plain to us that in the middle of all of that, we are clearly confronted with our need for salvation and for our sinfulness. As we are remembering what Jesus has done, we remember why Jesus did what he did. Our understanding, just as we share the gospel with somebody and we use the law as, our, as the schoolmaster to show them their need for Jesus Christ, to show them their sinfulness, to show them that there is nothing that they can do that would measure up or cover or pay the price for the sinful sin that they have committed. When we come to the communion table, it's all the sweeter knowing that while we were yet sinners, Romans 5, 8, Christ died for us. That he did everything that was necessary, that he was going to be the sacrificial lamb that takes away the sin of the world that he was going to pour out his blood, that his body was going to be broken on our behalf, not after we had prepared ourselves, not after we had made ourselves acceptable, but in spite of the sin that we had committed. In fact, he was going to do so, as he said earlier, for the remission, for the forgiveness of our sins. So in all of this, as we remember what Jesus has done, there is also a remembrance of the reason that he did it, that he would show us his love, that he would love us enough that he would send his son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. 
So we're going to remember, we're going to talk about this morning, remember Jesus and his ministry in all fronts of it, in all aspects of it. And we're going to put it into some general categories. First of all, his incarnation. We're going to talk about the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the remembrance of his incarnation. We're going to remember his sinless life. We're going to remember his sacrifice. And we're going to remember his resurrection. So we look at that, those categories, it sums up everything that Jesus did here on this earth. Everything that he did to make preparation and to execute the plan of redemption that he had promised all the way back in Genesis. So let's talk about it. Incarnation. Incarnation is the taking on of flesh. It's where Jesus came from heaven and and existed here as a man, yet remained fully God. In Matthew chapter 1, if you'll turn there with me, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. As the angel is speaking to Joseph, as he is proclaiming what is going to happen, excuse me, rather, <clears throat> he says this, and he quotes from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being translated, which being interpreted, is God with us. We have to understand that there is a distinction amongst Christianity in that the God that we worship, the God of the Bible that that is revealed to us, exists and is concerned with the affairs of man. So much so that he would leave the divine glory of heaven, his perfect throne of authority, and condescend to an estate lower than angels so that he might be with us, that he might be amongst us, that he might make preparation and take care of those things in regard to our sin and his plan and purpose for redeeming us. He was fully God, yet he was fully man at the same time. We call that the hypostatic union, the coming together. In John chapter 1, we find another exclamation of the same truth. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The assumption is that He has always existed, that there is nothing created about Him. And in fact, that's true. When we first encounter God, reveal the first revelation of Himself, In Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God, and it assumes his existence. When Moses says to the burning bush, which is a manifestation of God here on earth, he says, what what am I going to tell everyone? Your name is who sent me. And God replies, I am. Tell them I am that I am has sent you. In other words, that I am uncreated, that I have always existed, that without Now, any intervention of anything in the universe, I was. 
In fact, not only without intervention of anything in the universe, but he predated, preexisted all of it. And by the word of his power, spoke everything that we know and understand into existence. In the beginning was this word, was this God, and he was God. And in verse 14 of John chapter 1, and the word was made flesh. He was clothed in it. He was covered in it. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This creator of the universe, this self-existent God, took on flesh. As I said, he left the glory of heaven. He condescended to a state lower than that of angels, to that equal with us, our humanity. And he did so with a unique purpose. In Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, if you'll turn there with me, verses 7 and 8. Paul writes, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. This speaking of Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, who left that glorious estate of, of his throne, of his glory, of his authority, not abdicating it, but leaving it behind for the purpose, as he continues on, of being made in the form of a servant, in the likeness of men, taking on flesh. And it says, in being found, verse 8, in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He humbled himself. He submitted himself to the plan of God the Father. Jesus Christ the Son submits himself to the plan of God the Father so that he might die. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus is there in his agony, praying and sweating drops of blood, as it were, looking forward to all that was about to take place. He said, Lord, if this cup can pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Submitting himself, becoming obedient even to the death on the cross. Jesus' incarnation, his taking on of flesh, his leaving of his glory. We see a small glimpse of it there on the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter and James and John ascend the mountain with Jesus Christ. And temporarily and very briefly, we see Jesus in his glory. So much so that Peter says, Lord, this is good. This is very good. Let's make a place for you to stay here. And Jesus in response says, listen, Peter, this is, there is more for me to do. I didn't come here to be worshipped, to be set up on this hill. I came, as we read here in Philippians chapter 2, for the purpose of dying. Jesus took on flesh. He was incarnate. He was man. He was God clothed in the, in the frailty of humankind so that he may die in our place. As we come to the Lord's table, as we discuss that, as we look forward to the next couple of weeks, 
this breaking of bread and this sharing of the cup together, we do so in remembrance of his incarnation. That which has been promised by God from the very beginning, fulfilled perfectly in the man Jesus Christ. While he was here, while he was incarnate, while he was clothed in flesh, though he was in likeness as a man, he didn't have the same frailty as man. And what I mean by that is that Jesus Christ led a sinless life. He was perfect, spotless Lamb of God. In John chapter 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to him, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And just as the lamb that had to be offered there at Passover had to be a spotless lamb, something without blemish. And don't make a mistake, this doesn't mean that it was perfectly snowy white. I mean, it's that it was healthy, that it was prepared, that it was everything that it needed to be. You didn't bring as your sin offering, as God would later prescribe in the Old Testament, that which was already going to die. You brought of the best of the flock. This is an offering. This is a sacrifice. And when we think about this, Jesus Christ did not come. He wasn't sent by God the Father as something that was already going to die. He sent the best that he had. The perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4 for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. That's a statement of Jesus's incarnation, his humanity. He was just like us and that he was fully man. He understood what we went through. He understood the hardships. He understood the agony. When Jesus comes to Lazarus's tomb, who is his friend and he's died, he weeps. He grieves the loss of his friend. But it continues on. He was touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted in the same ways that we are tempted. He was confronted with the same things that would draw us away. Yet he didn't succumb to them. He didn't yield himself to that. There's something that we can take away from this, a truth that we need to hold on to. When we are faced with temptation, we have not committed sin. We as believers will get caught up in the sense that, boy, I've been tempted, therefore I've, I've fallen. Temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted just as we were tempted, yet he did not sin and is declared to be righteous, perfectly holy. He did always that which pleased the Father. There's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful and has made a way for us to stand under it. Jesus understands his sinlessness. Perfect Lamb of God. Turns me to 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3, let's look at verses 4 through 5.
Whosoever committeth sin transgresses also the law. For sin is a transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. We have the incarnation, we have the sinless life of Jesus Christ summed up very well in these verses. Here he is, Jesus Christ manifest, taking on flesh to take away our sins. And that in him was no sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we look at how this comes to be. Jesus Christ, in his agony, as he, as he looks forward to what is about to happen on the cross. And why is he agonizing? Why is it hard? Why does he beg for this cup to be taken from him? It isn't the physical pain and suffering. I'm convinced of that. As bad as it may be, Jesus is looking for, forward with, with concern at something far greater than that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, He has made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Here is Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, and He is on the altar of the cross, made the manifestation of all sin of all time before God. And in the midst of that, he's going to suffer the punishment and the agony of all sin for all time. Jesus wasn't concerned so much about the pain on the cross, about the agonizing succumbing to the suffocation that eventually happens, to the scourging and to all of those things that were physical torment. Jesus Christ was looking and agonizing about being made sin and being separated from his father as a manifestation of sin. Jesus agonized over the exchange, the atonement that he was about to make. And the reason that he was about to make it in the, was so that we could be made the righteousness of God. Not just righteous but a righteousness equal to that of our Creator, which is the standard that we have failed to keep. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory, the standard of God. But Jesus Christ, in His sinlessness, in His perfection, in His perfect holiness, here in this life, in the flesh, is able to make atonement on our behalf. He took on flesh for the purpose of dying. He lived a perfect life so that we might receive the righteousness of God through His sacrifice. Speaking of Jesus' sacrifice, He clearly came to die. That was the purpose. This is what it all has led up to, the redemptive purpose of God manifest in Jesus Christ, how it was going to take shape and form. All the way back in Isaiah chapter 53, if you'll turn there with me. As we look at these prophetic utterances of all that God has promised in redeeming mankind. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 3. 
He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. We was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had no, done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The prophet Isaiah, by inspiration of God, tells us that Jesus has come to be that sacrifice. And that in the midst of all of that, we didn't esteem him. He, it says that he came to his own and his own received him not. But here they are. and We esteem that he must have been, we estimated that he must have been stricken by God. That, that here is this man who is suffering on this cross and he must somehow be a malefactor. He must somehow be a sinful person. Yet here it is, this clear description of this being the will and purpose of God, it being his sacrifice brought on our behalf. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to make him the sacrifice for our sins. That his body may be broken on our behalf, that his blood may be shed for you and I, this is the will and the purpose of God. Not that Jesus would come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. In 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. Let's look at verse 24. <clears throat> Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live under righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. This was a sacrifice that Jesus offered of himself, freely. You'll remember that when they came to take Jesus Christ, when they came to the garden with torches and clubs and weapons to take him, 
And Peter draws his sword and cuts off the high priest's servant's Malchus's ear. Jesus rebukes him. Peter, this is the reason that I've come. This is my task. This is the will of the Father that I would be the sacrifice for sin. When we talk about communion, when we talk about the remembrance that is made, the incarnation, Jesus' perfect sinless life, his sacrifice on our behalf. And we also remember the resurrection. That is Jesus Christ on the cross, gave up the ghost, just like our projector did. That he yields himself to death. He didn't stay dead. He did not remain in the tomb. He did not remain conquered by the effects and the consequence of sin. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Romans chapter 6, 9 through 11. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death has no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Death couldn't hold him. It had no effect, lasting effect on him, yet he had to submit to it. He had to succumb to it. And just as Jesus told his disciples, if I lay my life down, I will take it up again. He died once to sin, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. In this passage, in Acts chapter 2, Peter, after receiving the Holy Spirit, Jesus has ascended after his resurrection into heaven, promising uh, to send the Holy Spirit previously. And as the disciples are in the upper room and they all receive the Holy Spirit with the sound of the rushing wind and the tongues of fire above their heads, and Peter comes out at Pentecost and he begins to preach to the people who were there. And God manifests and confirms the whole circumstance by the hearing of Peter in their own languages, people from all over. In Acts chapter 2, verses 24 through 28, Peter, one of the eyewitnesses of the risen Lord, says this, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, thou hast made Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Peter, the eyewitness of the risen Lord, 
confirms the prophetic utterance of David, who says, the Lord will not allow me to see corruption. Speaking of Jesus Christ, who was not going to be left there to rot in the grave, just as we read a couple weeks ago in Job, right? Though my, my body be turned back into worm food, yet he trusts and he looks forward to the resurrection. Yet Jesus Christ here, through the, through the prophecy of David, says that my body will not see corruption, that it won't fail, that it won't succumb to being word food. God preserves him and raise him, raises him again three days later. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 4 through 8, we, we, we have in the beginning of that chapter the, the very simple points of the gospel. But in verses 4 through 8, we have the confirmation that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas or Peter. And then he was seen by 500 all at once. We have these eyewitnesses. And there's this statement at the end of that. He says, and the greater part of which are still alive today. In other words, Paul says, go and ask them. Don't take my word for it. Here is the risen Jesus Christ. And you can go and ask these. He's appeared to 500 of them all at once. And you can go and see if what I'm telling you is true. And he continues on and he says, these are the others that he's appeared to. And he says, last of all, me, Paul. As he encounters him on the road to Damascus. This confirmation of Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. Confirming who he was, confirming what he did, and the confirmation of what that means to you and I as believers and to the world as unbelievers. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. Hebrews chapter 10, 12 and 13. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice... For sins forever sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. We have this comparison made between Jesus Christ and the Old Testament priests. And the Old Testament priests would regularly bring their sacrifice. And before they brought their own sacrifice or sacrifice for the people, they had to bring sacrifice for themselves over and over and over. Yet here is Jesus Christ, and it says that he offered the sacrifice once and then sat down at the right hand of God. And the resurrection being one of the key signifiers of that truth. Jesus Christ rising from the dead, not remaining in the tomb, is the confirmation that it is one and done. That there isn't any offering left. That it is efficacious. In other words, it's effective to the relief and the pardon of our sinfulness. That it is everything necessary provided by God himself, confirmed by the miracle of the resurrection. Remember when Jesus was confronted and they said, listen, we want a sign. 
And Jesus said, I'm not going to give you any sign except for the sign of Jonah the prophet, who was three days in the belly of the whale. Jesus said, my body will be dead for three days. In the book of John, when you go and read that parable, it says that this he spoke of his body. And three days later, he rose again. When we come to the table, the Lord's table, we partake of the, the two elements, the bread and the cup, representative of his body, representative of the new covenant, his shed blood for us. We come in remembrance of what Jesus Christ has fully done. We remember the resurrection. We remember his sacrifice, his sinless life. We remember his incarnation, the taking on of flesh. Now, all of that for you and I, and this is where we, I say we, this is where I have failed you. Here we are to do this. And it doesn't say, nowhere in Scripture does it say, you shall participate in the Lord's Supper as a church this many times quarterly, or, or this many times in a year, or weekly, or monthly. Nowhere do we find any of that. What we do find is that as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. That's the exhortation that we find. But consider this, that no matter what or how often we do this, it should be often enough that we have the remembrance of all of the ministry of Jesus Christ, what he has finished on our behalf, fresh in our hearts and minds. So for us, having gone literally years without partaking or participating in the celebration and the remembrance of what Jesus Christ has done in that manner prescribed by Jesus. We take the time now to put ourselves in remembrance of those things and look forward for the next few weeks with anticipation, hopefully, to what Jesus is going to do to the remembrance that is going to be made on our behalf, in our hearts and minds, by the Holy Spirit. The truths of Scripture should have an effect upon us. And the remembrance that we make, the remembrance of all that Jesus has finished on our behalf, should have an effect upon us. When we think about Jesus taking on flesh and doing everything necessary, living a sinful, sinless life, excuse me, when we remember Jesus Christ laying down his body willingly as a sacrifice for you and I, and then taking up his life again in the resurrection, confirming all the truths that he has spoken of himself and that were uttered thousands of years before his coming, there should be some response, a reciprocation of love. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, if you will, for a moment. Now in Hebrews chapter 12, when we usually go to Hebrews 12, we're usually talking about the correction of the Lord and his love and concern for us taking that form. But I want to look at a couple of verses here, and I want to look at them from a different perspective, because the reciprocation of our love is obedience. It's a pursuit of our personal holiness. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Wherefore, 
seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. I want to just pause there for a moment. That's reference to chapter 11, the hall of faith, where we see God being faithful and we see the lives of those who are walking in trust to all that the Lord has commanded them to. Because of that, because of the witness of those saints, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. In other words, let us pursue holiness. Let us put off those things that would hinder us. Besetting means entangling. That here we are entangled by the things in this world, by sin itself. I was listening, rather, I was reading a sermon by C.H. Spurgeon and, and, uh, and talking about this, those things that are far off, right? We look at those things that are far off and we look with expectation and we look with hope and we look with joy. And we remember all that Christ has done, but it's at a distance. It's down the road. It isn't really at a distance, but that's how we perceive it. Because we come to the Lord's table and we come whenever we might come. But we live in a world that is corrupted by sin, that has all these pulls on us all the time, every day, and every moment of every day. And those are the things that would draw us away and pull our attention and our focus from those things that God has done on our behalf. That would entangle us and make us useless for the kingdom of God. Yet here is the exhortation, because of the faithfulness of God, because of the witness of saints in the past, put off those entanglements, those things that would tie us up, and look, it says in verse 2, unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Focus upon Him. Look at Him who has done everything necessary, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. He went through it for the joy that was set before Him despising the shame, despising being made sin, despising this association with sin, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, it is finished. For consider him, it says in verse 3, that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Now, this isn't an exhortation to you and I to sinless perfection. That's not what's being discussed here. But what is being discussed is that here is Jesus Christ. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners, who went through so much, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Lest we grow weary. We look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the, the, the captain of our salvation, the means and source of grace unto salvation and unto godly living. You have not yet resisted on the blood, striving against sin. The first reciprocation of love that we can make in response to the remembrance of all that Christ has done for us is a pursuit of personal holiness, a focusing of our attention upon Jesus Christ, a focusing of our attention upon the things of God, and a putting off and a disassociating ourselves with and from 
the things that would entangle us in this life. Secondly, we can reciprocate love to God through single-mindedness or singleness of heart, I think is a better way to say it. Turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. In regard to, the, to a discussion about prayer and asking God for things, he says in verse 8 of James chapter 1, a double-minded man or a double-hearted, which is a better translation, a double-hearted man is unstable in all of his ways. Right? This is a description of the man who has one foot in the world, who is drawn and pulled over here, and one foot over on this side of the fence that wants to walk and participate with the Lord, and he's constantly pulled in different directions. And he's unstable as a result. Turn with me to James chapter 4. We need a unification of heart. We need singleness of heart. James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. And this hits pretty hard. You adulterers and you adulteresses, know you not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Those of us who will be straddling the fence, who will be divided in heart. God doesn't look at us as somebody who's slightly off page. He looks at us as somebody who is an adulterer. And he rebukes us in that sense. Verse 5, do you think that the scriptures say it in vain, the spirit that dwells in you lusts to envy? But he gives more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's an exhortation here to put off those things that would divide us to solely and completely submit ourselves to God, to resist those entanglements that would draw us all the time. Jesus put it this way, take up your cross daily and follow me. Consciously, day in and day out, make the choice that I'm going to submit myself, humble myself before the Lord, knowing that I will receive grace for whatever I may encounter. And stand firm in singleness of heart, in singleness of purpose. Verse 9, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. We talk about singleness of heart. We talk about this divide, one foot in the world and one foot with Christ. And there is a perception for you and I as believers that to remain single to heart, to, to put both feet on, on Jesus' side of the fence is loss. That I have given something up as a result. And that is an incorrect perception. 
It is not the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter is that keeping one foot over here is what is causing us to be unstable. One foot over here in the world is what is bringing us down and stumbling us. When we have both feet together in Christ's camp, it says he will lift us up. Jesus said to you and I that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's as if as we pull alongside with him, he grabs us around the waist that he lifts us up and keeps us on our feet. Because we are solely and completely yoked with him. We reciprocate our love to the, to the things that Christ has done for us through pursuit of personal holiness, through singleness of heart, and third and last, by living life on God's terms. In Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Paul writes, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that what is good an acceptable and perfect will of God. We want to live life on God's terms, not on terms that we've created ourselves. And here Paul says, I beseech you, which is one of the strongest terms of encouragement and exhortation that we find in Scripture. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, in response to the mercies of God, in other words, Present your bodies a living sacrifice. He's not saying to lay down and die. What he's saying is that your life is lived as a sacrifice to Christ. That we do pick up our cross daily. That we do take the things of God seriously. That we do take the things of God to the world around us. No matter what the price may be. And he concludes that it is our reasonable service. It's the least that we can do in response to what God has done on our behalf. And be not conformed, he says. Don't be like the world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There's some inference here that you and I would be engaged with him in his word and by the spirit so that we may recognize those things that he has called us to, that he has said are right, or those things that he has said is wrong. And as we've talked about on Thursday nights, not so long ago, in regard to repentance, there are going to be things that we encounter that we're going to have to give up. That I'm going to have to say and acknowledge, Lord, I've looked at that incorrectly, that I have been willing to stand with one foot over there and one foot over here on that particular topic. And, and Lord, I want to be in your camp completely and holy. We reciprocate the love of Christ and as we remember what he has done for us, and it is a motivator. In fact, it is something that we would do as we come to the Lord's table as an effort to put ourselves in remembrance of what he has done. And we reciprocate 
the love that we receive. We reciprocate that in our pursuit of personal holiness, in our singleness of heart and living life on God's terms, not on our own. Jesus Christ gave us the ordinance of communion, of the Lord's table, for the purpose of remembrance. And that remembrance should manifest itself in your life and in my life in action. We do a disservice. I have done a disservice by not taking communion more frequently. One that we are going to rectify. Let's close in prayer this morning. Father, we praise you. And we thank you for the opportunity to gather here in your name. Lord, I praise you for the opportunity to take just a few moments today and look at the things that you have finished. Lord, and as we look through the next few weeks at communion, as we look at the elements and what they symbolize for us, as Lord, we are put into remembrance today of all that you have done in your ministry here in taking on flesh for the purpose of dying, in living a life that was sinless, therefore qualifying you to be the appropriate sacrifice. Lord, for willingly sacrificing yourself and then confirming all of those by the miracle of your resurrection. God, may that spur us on to living for you to pursuing holiness, a representation of who you are, Lord, in our lives personally. God, may those truths, may, may those things that we remember about you and what you've done, may they, Lord, push us to a singleness of heart. There are so many concerns in this life and in this world, Lord. May we be more concerned about those things, your kingdom and your righteousness. And God, may we live life on your terms by your grace. Thank you for what you've done, Lord. And as we praise you this morning, as we sing with adoration and thanksgiving for who you are and what you've done, be honored by it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.